Welcome everyone to the 90th episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with uh, Nick Tartaglia. We got sunshine, we got rain, we got Humidity. tornadoes, we got hurricanes, <laughs> and like the market just keeps going up. So I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what to say, man. It's a foreshadowing moment, I think. I think we got to, you know, project it a little more into the future and not be so, uh, you know, you in life, you want to be day to day, you know, be in the present. But I don't think we should be looking at markets that way sometimes. Well, I think you want to have a plan. There's no question about that. But the patience gets factored in on a day to day basis. Right. Mm-hmm. We saw what happened with banks today. Earnings were through the roof. Yeah. I think banks have bottomed. But again, don't quote me on that. Um, and I, I don't think we should be surprised to see more movement to the upside here going into the rest of the year. I don't know what 2024 has in store. I know that uh, our friends in the U S have a very uh, significant election coming up. Who knows when ours is going to be some crazy stuff happening, but Mm -hmm. it would not surprise me to see more movement to the upside, especially with everything going on. The big question that I have is what do you do with all that debt? at a later time but um you know there's a lot there's a lot happening right now that uh that that, that isn't being talked about yeah well you got deflation i mean sure people can argue so here's back what me and you were talking about before right so people might say well even if inflation is slowing down sure but it doesn't negate or undo the effects of two three years of in huge inflation numbers so something that's gone up 50% or a double in two years it doesn't automatically reverse that you still now incur that cost It's just the cost is not growing at the same rate as it was before, but you're still paying more. So slow down inflation doesn't necessarily mean a good thing. It still means you're getting screwed. It's just the rate at which you're getting screwed is not as bad. That's all it means. So let's let's not take that. uh, Let's not forget about that. And then there's another cool saying by Milton Friedman that says, you know, the good effects of inflation are are felt early on. But then after that, when the withdrawal comes in, you're no longer happy about the inflation. Yeah. I, I think this is one of those times too where um, a lot of seed planting is happening. Um, but I think you got to be a little bit more frugal with capital, right? So of course. let's take the focus off the macro. Let's talk about the micro. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've actually met someone in Quebec City um, who is managing a, a very interesting hedge fund or family office, I should say, out in Panama. Um, Nick, you had a great conversation with him as well. And, um, you know, he is a millennial, which I think is so interesting to, to, to be talking to someone who's the founder and managing director of, of, of this firm. Um, he was born and raised in Panama city. I haven't been there since 2010, lovely place. Um, but he's an active founder, director, advisor, and investor across the cannabis, psychedelic mining, esports, e-commerce, renewables, real estate, tech, and financial vehicles. I mean, talk about all diversities, of sectors, which is awesome. And he's also a former deputy director of the Panama Chamber of Commerce, Industry and Agriculture, and the recipient of the NACD.DC designation from the National Association of Corporate Directors. Um, with us here today is the founder and managing director of Canalis Capital out of Panama City. Welcome to the New Gen Mindset podcast, Raymond Harari. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Nick. Happy to be here and to be talking about you know all those interesting topics today. Of course. So Ray, first off, as every podcast, we like to get get to know our, our guests a little, you know. So, start off by just telling us about your history. You know, how did you get where you are, and just you know, a little bit of your story. 
Sure. So, um, well, first of all, I, I love Canada and I, and I got to your country in a, in a pretty unconventional way, but I mm. just think there's some really great people, uh, amazing opportunities. And, you know, in particular, the Canadian stock markets are pretty captivating and unique for me. So that's mm. mostly the space that I'm focused on. Uh, a bit of my background, uh, I was born and raised in Panama, come from a completely different world. Uh, I'm part of the fourth generation of a large family business that's in diversified industries. Uh, so we're in uh, retail, financial services, wholesale, uh, brands and real estate, uh, pretty active family group. But, you know, as a, I guess, you know, a millennial, I, I wanted to do my own thing and find something different to do, uh, which led me to explore different ideas, different opportunities. And rather than, you know, just sort of go through the traditional business channels, I wanted to do something different, something with uh, some impact and something that, you know, I would be wake up every morning wanting to, to really do. So I studied systems engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. I had a minor in entrepreneurship. So I had a bit of a technical background. I never really wanted to actually practice being an engineer, uh, but I felt that it gives you a pretty good technical background. Um, you know, I feel like business, you learn by doing business. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of what I've been sort of doing in my journey. Uh, but after my engineering degree, I worked at Nomura uh, in investment banking. Uh, so worked there as an analyst for a few years. So, you know, translated a, a lot of that uh, education, more technical into the financial side, uh, analyzing companies, doing, you know, equity capital markets, debt capital markets, M&A. It's a pretty good experience. Um, and after that, I moved to Panama and you know, worked for the family for some time, but wanted to find something, I guess, a bit different, more that fitted my personality and, and my skill set. Um, and, you know, the first place I wanted to look at was the cannabis space. Um, I felt like it was a, a misunderstood sector with a lot of upside and opportunity. Uh, you would have massive stigma and uh, regulations that would make it difficult for institutions, large corporations to have access to these companies. So um, I decided I wanted to get involved in it. And, you know, Latin America is usually, you know, 10 to 15 years behind on most trends. So I felt like if I became an expert um, in the cannabis space where it was legal, I could sort of you know, uh, uh, leverage that knowledge in the future to sort of shepherd the process through Latin America. Uh, that led me to Canada, the only place in the world you could do a federally legal business in the cannabis space. Um, ended up sort of exploring the market, came across a, a great company called Tokyo Smoke, was an early investor. I joined the board, raised some capital for them, was involved in, you know, some of, of the, the initiatives they had. And we ended up selling that company to Canopy Growth, uh, which was a great exit in the markets at, you know, the peak of, of the cannabis space. And that just gave me a great sort of, you know, a, a, a sample case study as to how the Canadian capital markets can really accelerate the growth and development of the company, give them more visibility, allow them to acquire companies using their equity and a lot of creative structures. Um, so after, you know, sort of the cannabis market ended, my takeaway was how can I leverage these capital markets into using them for other industries? Fortunately, it's a very transferable skill set. Uh, doesn't matter what service you're, you're offering or what product you're selling. You know, the financial side, the capital market side, how to put together a public company, the filings, all of that is fairly similar. So um, I was lucky to be able to sort of transfer that. So um, like you said, I went into psychedelics. That was the obvious sort of next step, a lot of similar tendencies and trends, um, and then sort of kept, um, I guess, uh, uh, expanding from a sector agnostic perspective. Um, I believe it's important to be as diversified as possible. 
Um, I think, you know, in our sort of line of work, you're, you know, hoping for one of those um, unusual outlier cases to sort of cover most of the losses. So it's important to, you know, sort of try and, you know, taste different sectors. Sometimes you're going to be early and you need to have enough other opportunities that could cover for, you know, that sector taking longer than, than you expect. And you know, I guess that takes me to sort of the, the last point and why, why we met in Quebec, which is I entered the mining industry about three years ago uh, when COVID started. Um, and Nick, we spoke about this. I have, we, we sort of share a lot of the ideas in that, you know, you almost have your wish list for a mining run where you have, you know, huge inflation, deglobalization, electrification, the, the reserves are, are dwindling. There wasn't as much exploration during COVID because of, you know, obvious reasons. Uh, so it's a great time to be in the resource market. And that's what really sort of um, um, pulled me into it. So since 2020, I've been doing deals in the Canadian markets with mining companies. I've done, you know, silver companies, gold companies, just looking at uh, cobalt as well. Just uh, uh, feels like there's opportunity in, in, in most commodities. And if you can find a good property or a good asset that is sort of, you know, slightly ignored and you can put a great team together, uh, then there's really magic that can that can happen from, from sort of that. So uh, we met in Quebec City was the first mining company conference I've I've ever been to it was an amazing experience to sort of you know go from the zoom uh, a world into more of an in-person world and actually see what these people are about be able to you know not just have like a direct uh, I guess business conversation but you know learn about them and it was just great people and you know just felt like I, I learned much more about the depth of the industry got to meet a lot of people had great conversations with you know people like Nick and other like-minded individuals so you know, that's sort of what I do now work actively in capital markets um, you know seems like the flavor of the day is commodities as I mentioned uh, but that doesn't preclude me from looking at other sectors you always have to be thinking okay what's going to be next in two years three years five years and sort of start planting seeds in those sectors finding great people and and whatnot so you know I sort of look at how to Build businesses in those sectors, advise companies, list them, um, and just always have shells available because when a good deal comes, you need to be uh, able to offer something to them uh, for them to want to go in, into your vehicle and get a deal done. So uh, I hope that gives a bit of, of background and happy to double click or dive down deeper into any points you guys think relevant. So this is good. We have another shell guy in case somebody <laughs> wants to go public. This is really good because I do get calls sometimes from some public some companies that are trying to like merge and stuff but you're on my list now which is good um i want to backtrack it's really interesting because like you're obviously it, it seems to me like you're you're a deal guy but you also understand how to put teams together which i find again is so fascinating i kind of want to backtrack to when the cannabis space really started because that was my i mean for me personally i think nick too that was kind of like our intro to like mm -hmm. what wealth creation could potentially look like um, and I find the unfortunate thing that happened to Canada is they've literally commoditized the entire space. Mm -hmm. You know, Canopy came out last week. They did another equity raise or some kind of, there was a dilution liquidity event where mm -hmm. they like dumped like, I don't know, I think it was eight, $8 million worth of stock uh, on the shareholders where uh, the debt holders got repaid to kind of restructure the company. So there's like this, there's like cycles that have happened, right? The easy money has been made. Now the real businesses, uh, 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 they, they got to start making money. So mm -hmm. I'm curious to know from your experience, you know, the last call it seven years, really, because that's really when cannabis was really just starting to take off. What sort of your, what, what were like, first of all, what were the couple lessons that you learned throughout that industry? And what's sort of your take on what the next step of that industry looks like for companies to actually stay in that space and kind of maintain and, and become profitable at some point. Sure. So, so I'll start by addressing that you mentioned that the sector got commoditized. Um, I think that's absolutely true. 
But I don't think that's a surprise at all. If you look at the beer industry, you don't see the wheat farmers making a massive profit, right? It's in the distribution, it's in the brands, in sort of the cold storage and cold supply chain. Uh, so it's more on the value add. Like it's it's very difficult for sort of the, the raw material producers to make a huge profit because there's very low barriers of entry. Um, and I think in cannabis, it was perceived that it wouldn't be the case because you would have limited licenses. Uh, but it happens to be that with a license, you can produce a lot of the supply. So uh, I guess that ended up uh, accelerating the commoditization of the of the sector. But that's that was what's going to happen, in, in my opinion. And I think we see it in in other industries. Um, I think the cannabis sector in general was a was a very very interesting opportunity. Like I said before, you had a market where institutional investors and you know licensed and certified groups were not able to access it for either stigma or uh, regu- regulatory reasons. Uh, so that gives you know us the retail investors and people a bit sort of with you know uh, uh, less less sophisticated than these institutions have access to this uh, without having to be competing against them. So it it just g- gave you like a really open market for uh, a lot a lot more opportunities to be to be capitalized on. So I think it was very interesting in that sense. Um, I think you know it was very very interesting to see how the euphoria played and how you would see any companies, be it public markets or private markets, they would go out with crazy valuations, mm-hmm. with insane expectations and projections, and people would barely question them because the assumption that at the time was the demand here is gonna be so huge that it doesn't matter how I grow, I'm going to sell it. So the models mm-hmm. these companies had where you know your your production model was the same as your revenue model, which you know, doesn't really, really make sense. And I think that's sort of an issue that it had. And, you know, like like every industry, like you have, you know, a big, big bubble and, and a big jump. And then, you know, people start saying, hey, this is overpriced. And it takes a while for the market to realize that. And, you know, you don't want to be the last one holding the bag and, and when the market sort of turns. So, um, you know, I think uh, uh, there were people that started companies early and had the right timing, but they stayed too long, maybe, you know, got a bit cocky, thought their stock would go up, you know, 300% after it already went 1000% up. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's just difficult. And like, I remember at the time, like you're very bullish on it. You're in this eco chamber where everyone's talking about it. You feel like it's just the beginning and, you know, it just feels like that all the time. So like, I'd say like the biggest lesson I took is, you know, it's impossible to price the peak. Like you just need to be monetizing and, and, and generating income from what, from your positions at every point in time, because you're never going to time the peak. So you need to be early and you need to be constantly disposing and Hey, yeah, maybe you're going to sell some shares that are, you know, not at the peak of the market. Uh, but if you're selling on the way up, um, you're going to be extracting profits and, and making money at, at every point. I mean, obviously there are the winners and names where you have more, more confidence on, you may want to, to hold longer. Uh, but I'd say it's impossible to time the peak. It's just so hard and sentiment changes so badly. And, you know, you sort of realize in the middle of it, like, oh, oh my God, the market turned and, you know, you're sort of caught in it. And then you have this, the opposite sort of issue, which is like, oh, uh, it sort of went down a bit. I'm going to, I'm going to wait until it sort of recovers mm-hmm. and sells. And, you know, that, that sell order never hits. And you sort of realize the stock's like, you know, 80% down and you really had the, you knew it was going to go down. You had the conviction you want to sell, but you just didn't hit it because you were trying to, you know, save a few basis points. So I think those were really, um, I guess, interesting, interesting takeaways. And I think, look, there's, going to be sectors like cannabis all over the place. We're going to see trends coming up. Uh, but just like there's the trends that, that catch fire, there's tons of them that are just fads and, and just don't materialize. So, 
you know, I think cannabis was one that had a big, a big boom. We're now seeing AI having a big boom. Um, I think there are other interesting sectors to look at that are, you know, I have like my, my bets, for example, I, have you heard of the term, um, uh, silver tech? The term silver tech? Yeah. Um, so, so not in terms of like the commodity silver, uh, but there's this no. new sort of sector where it's like thinking of services for the baby boomers that are retiring. So anything that has to do with, you know, old age homes or technology, mm. well, tracking technologies for, um, for senior citizens, like it's a big trend that is sort of coming up with the boomers retiring. So okay. that's something I have my eye on and I'm looking for opportunities. And I just think like cannabis, there's, you know, a bunch of other opportunities you need to think, and that may never materialize, mm -hmm. but if it does and you're there early, um, the rewards are huge. Well, it's not a horrible theme. I do. I, I am definitely on the train of the whole boomer retiring and what impact that will cause on asset classes and where opportunities can lay within that type of that type of trend. So I'm also with you on that theme 100% because it is definitely a fascinating. It, I mean, it's half the population is what you can almost say that's a boomer. So, you know, it, it's something's got to come from that. So it's like, how can I place myself to kind of take advantage of that trend? So definitely, that's definitely a good one. Um, so playing off of what you were saying about the whole, um, the price mechanisms of the market kind of went crazy because people started realizing, well, the demand side was so, was going to develop so much pressure that it's like, it just blew evaluations out of the water. So it's like, it's, it's kind of like a funny little foreshadowing kind of to what's happening in the mining sector, or at least not currently with the prices, but what can come of it once people start realizing just how much demand pressure is going to come to the sector. Yeah. And, and to that point, I'd also say like, you know, selling a dream is very easy. Actually yeah. executing and making sure it materializes is much more difficult. And to that extent, like, I mean, it's just so tough to actually run a business. There's so mm -hmm. many other risks. Like it's hard to get someone that actually works. There's so many things that can go wrong when you're running a business that are just hard to see when you're sort of looking at a stock chart. Like it's, it's completely different. And then you sort of have the component, which is like, okay, when you're a public company, you're running two businesses. You're running the operating business and you're running the public company. And if you're really bad at running the public company, it doesn't matter how good you execute on the business, your stock's going to go down. Like you need to manage that and there has to be a harmonic synergy between both sides. So you're actually benefiting from your public listing, but it's not just like, okay, I'm going to list the company and just go to sleep or just keep operating. Like there are sort of things that come with it and you need to manage your, your stock price. You need to create awareness. You need to sort of put out your name and, and, you know, communicate the market, what you're doing, what you're going to do, then go back to them and say, Hey, did you remember I told you that? And now I did it. Look, here are the results. And like, that's really important to sort of get that volume and that flow coming in. Um, and just getting more people to look at your at your stock. That's what's so interesting, um, because you know I've been in I've been doing investor relations. I've also been raising money for for companies as well, indirectly, just talking to like people and then getting those you know those block orders or whatever it is, and talking to a lot of public company CEOs. I think you can really identify one that understands how to operate a business while having a great capital market strategy in place versus somebody who comes in and is just like, we just want to get volume in the stock. We just want to get volume in the stock. We just want to get volume. In. And I'm just like, okay, well, let me ask you a question. What are you doing right now for investors to come back to you and say, okay, this is actually an interesting piece. And they're like, no, we don't care. We're paying you to do this. And I'm like, well, it's, it's like a two-way street. So I'm curious to know what your philosophy is on that. Like what, when you look at like a management team, for example, when you look at a CEO or the CFO or, you know, managing director, whatever, whoever's on the board, what do you feel are some other important criteria where you're just like, Hey, this is a great 
person that we should get behind versus somebody that you're just like, if we can find a way to get him out, we'll get him out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think, I mean, being a, a CEO is a is a difficult task. You need to have a, a lot of skill sets and a lot of functions. And I think, you know, it's really important that you're humble and self-aware of where your deficiencies are and where, you know, there's someone that's probably going to be better than you at, at something. Um, because otherwise, if you try to do everything, you're not going to accomplish anything. And that and that's a, a common theme I see in a lot of companies. Um, I think it's you know important that each each CEO will have their style and they'll run the company however they 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 you know it works with their skill set. Uh, but it's important that they surround themselves with the right mm-hmm. people because you know it's very rare to find someone that can you know sort of do it all. Um, like I said, when it relates to capital markets, it's like you're running two businesses. Like it's just really hard to be like on the execution mindset. And also on like the, what do investors want to hear? Because it's not necessarily the same thing. Like there may be metrics that, you know, uh, are better for investors and they like them more. And there are metrics that are really, you know, better when it comes to the health of the business. So you know, it really depends on timing and, and on trends. Like, you know, I'd say, you know, I, I think management is probably the, the hardest uh, thing to determine. And, you know, you can jump into a business and everything around it can change. You can change industries. You can pivot. You can bring more money and change investors. But you're stuck with the people. Um, so ultimately, that's where I do most of my due diligence. Um, you know, you 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 gotta you gotta find the right people that can shepherd your capital that you know are aligned with you. You know, someone that's not just drawing a massive salary and has no ownership in the company, right? Like you need someone that you know sees the light at the end of the tunnel and the pot of gold after the rainbow. Uh, because if, you know, if, if he's motivated and he wants to win, then you as a shareholder are going to win. So, you know, I'd say, uh, uh, summarize, uh, you need to have uh, self-awareness and humility, and you also need to have alignment of interests. Um, and I think those are some of the, of the many ingredients necessary for a competent management team that will make your company successful. It's funny because I have a story to add to this. So just, uh, last week there was a, an investment conference with, uh, with uh, a kind of like this um, green uh, company that had to do with kind of refining uh, carbon emissions or something like that in the United States from oil refineries or something in that nature. And then there was two mining companies and one of the mining companies, I'm not going to mention names. I'll just say uh, what they were said. And one of them was at the end, we were talking about the other kind of the other management team that they had met and they were judging. They were saying, you don't admit that you're staying at a hotel on your investor's dollar for a thousand dollars a night while you're trying to raise money and you're generating no revenue. You don't mention that you, you look dumb because he was going, I'm paying, I'm paying 120 bucks a night to stay here to meet investors. And we, there's no rev, there's some revenue, but we're trying to grow. We're trying to show that we care about investors. And then here you are admitting you're, you're spending almost a thousand dollars a night at a hotel on your investor's dollar. And in my mind, and he goes in my mind that this guy would never want to trust them with my money. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's an easy lifestyle. Like you have all the perks and all the expenses paid. Like why would you make a significant change in the company? Like you're mm-hmm. you're too comfortable, and that creates misalignment. So no, that's that's exactly the example. And I would say it's it's more common to see those things in bull markets because mm-hmm. there's a lot of money to spend. Um, I and we're not even a bull market in the mining space. I'd be concerned. <laughs> I'd be concerned when I see that in this in a market space, like you know. This. Um, yeah, you got to be careful with, with capital. I mean, there's no time, like there's no space for wasting money. It's not your dollars and you have to be responsible for, for your investors' money. Otherwise, how can you expect them to put more money on your, on your, on your pockets? And how, how, how is that, how is that translated into the mining space now? Everything you've learned? Well, well um, 
I like the mining space quite a bit because I find it to be very sort of mathematical and precise. Like, you know, you get numbers and intersects and percentages and, you know, that makes for feasibility studies and you can make very detailed studies as opposed to sort of my previous experience in cannabis where, you know, it was very esoteric and, you know, sort of selling more of, of a dream. Here it's like, okay, there's a real thing. And so much more, you know, it's not a very old business, like, you know, we've seen mining forever. So, you know, you sort of see projects in the full life cycle of, of a mine. And, and it's very interesting to sort of, you know, be at a certain point and say, hey, I want to get to that point. Um, and you, you can very tangibly sort of advance it there with the multiple sort of regulatory milestones, technical milestones. Uh, so I find that to be quite interesting. Um, and I think the barriers of entry are tremendously low. Uh, like you don't need to have any particular skill sets. You don't need to have a ridiculous amount of money. If you're creative enough and manage to find a team and find an interesting property that, you know, maybe has millions of dollars in drilling, but it's forgotten for X or Y reason, you can sort of find it and put a team together. Uh, you can build something out of that, which I, th I think is, is very interesting. And, you know, I'd say like cannabis, there's going to be trends and there's going to be cycles in, in, in the mining space. Like you'll have ups and downs and, you know, uh, peaks and valleys and, you know, just like everything, uh, you sort of have to figure out how to time them. And I think it's a bit more, you know, it has to happen here when it comes to, to these commodities because they're used in everything we, we have from, you know, our phones to megaphones, to TVs, to computers, like everything has all of this complex uh, um, uh, resources, many of them, which we don't know. So, you know, one of the, the interesting thematics within mining that I've focused on is what they call rare earth elements. Mm -hmm. uh, so rare, er, rare earth elements, if you recall, are, you know, those, those elements in the bottom of, of the periodic table that all have, you know, weird, complicated names like, you know, praseodymium, meterbium, gallium, europium. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so those, so, so they all have like pretty diverse uses when it comes mm -hmm. to, you know, military defense, aerospace, uh, medical purposes, and you need this minerals and you know right now there's there's um an issue that the u.s doesn't have enough of control in the supply chain you have a very small percentage uh so that creates an issue in sort of sourcing your own materials and having certainty of supply being able to you know have this critical metals um so it's, it's one of the, the sectors i'm focusing where i think there's a lot of opportunity there's little ways to get exposure into these minerals and there's a real need in society and in the Western world to, mm -hmm. you know, develop a more robust sort of supply chain from sort of raw ore all the way to a finished product. So um, I find a lot of similarities and think it's quite interesting. I like I, I like the whole interconnectivity of that space because it always goes back to everyday things that I think everybody's using, right? Without silver, without copper right even those rare earth metals we don't have content creators on instagram right so <laughs> like that's the value chain that i see but yeah no i find it so i find it so interesting too because like anytime a ceo is out raising money and he's wearing like a suit and he's got a rolex and stuff i'm like why are you raising why are you asking people for two million dollars when you're pulling up in a rolex that's that's the stuff that like I think you only start realizing the more you get involved in these discussions, the more you actually see, okay, who's part of these deals, you know, because the ones that are not desperate for cash, they don't need, to, they won't even show up. They'll, they'll, they'll wear like a sweatshirt and that's it, you know, and you wouldn't even know that he's like a CEO. So I find that just so, so fascinating, particularly in mining as well, right? 
Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of that. I think you know there's there's a bit of that of them capitalizing on the on the greed side, mm-hmm. where it's more like, oh, he's wearing a Rolex. You know, it's probably because his company is doing great, so that's why I invest, and that captures you know another segment of the population. So I think there's you know different strategies, pros and cons, and what they and what they want to convey. I think you just need to be you know just know your audience, know who you're targeting, and you know ultimately. Uh, you know, those people that you're targeting with greed are probably going to be very susceptible to fear. And the second things start getting a bit ugly, they're going to be out the door. Whereas, you know, the more technical people that are doing proper due diligence that are really looking into your asset and developing a relationship with you and, you know, somebody can call, you know, on, 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 and get them within 24 hours. Like those are the guys that will stick with you through, you know, thick or thin. And that when the market goes down, they're going to be accumulating more stock and supporting your stock because they know that, you have something that's good. So you know, I think ultimately you have to cater your message to um, to what it is you want to do. And like I said, self-awareness is extremely important. Like you need to know where your flaws are and you need to be humble. And, and I think that's extremely important in stewarding people's capital. So what are some ways you yourself are playing the mining space? Um, so I do it in a, in a few ways. Um, I'm always sort of looking for new properties, new territories, whether it's through conference, mutual introductions, um, LinkedIn, just try and find an interesting property that you know needs sort of that push or that sort of creative coordination as to how do you incorporate the company, sort of get the claims in, in that, bring the right investors and sort of go through that whole stage process of building a business. Like I consider myself a business builder. That's sort of what I, I think I'm good at. Uh, so I like sort of that initial chaos and taking it from you know a blank canvas and sort of putting all of the pieces together, sort of see how it looks and you know tweak a few things and keep making it incrementally better until it's risk enough to a point where, you know, way more talented and competent people are going to be comfortable sort of jumping into it because it's significantly more de-risk than when I, when I joined. So that's sort of the, the space I like to play. Um, so either finding those properties, finding companies and management that are in the, in the need of what I just mentioned that I sort of do, it's more like an advisory uh, engagement rather than like a business building engagement. And then, you know, what we touched on earlier, which is shell companies, which I think they're amazing vehicles. And, you know, in, I've been probably involved with shells for now four or five years. And, you know, when you first get into the shell world, you think like, oh my God, this is so complicated. This is so unique. Like, oh, that guy has a shell. Like it's probably worth so much. What I've realized now after so long is shells are as good as the people behind them. Like they don't really give you any superpower or any anything crazy. Back to cannabis, like they're commoditized. Like a shell is a shell. It's a vehicle that will take you public. Uh, what you are really getting is you're inheriting the shareholders that are behind that shell. So essentially, you need to convince a company that having your guys on their cap table is worth the extra dilution and that you'll be aligned and that you'll escort yourself and that you'll be supportive and that you'll help. So that's where I see sort of the sales points in the shell. And I find shells to be great magnets for good deals because you have a shell and people contact you. Hey, I want to put my deal in your shell. You say, well, maybe you're not ready for the shell yet. Let me help you on the private side. And then we can go on a direct listing or IPO or list ourselves or, oh, wait, like, this shell has certain characteristics that it may not be a great fit, but I know this other guy that has a shell, it's a way better fit. He's looking for an asset just like yours. Let me put you guys together and I get some piece of the action for sort of getting them together and making the deal. So, you know, maybe I'll use my shells. Maybe I'll use third-party shells. But just holding your own shell is a great sort of put you in the ecosystem, get you in the conversation, get you sort of having deals flowing. You sort of get to meet good people. It's also a great way to sort of start a business and get in bed with someone with fairly low risk 
and sort of see how they act when things are slow or boring or when they're exciting or when they get tough or, you know, are they trying to raid the treasury? Like you can sort of get to see those character flaws with very little skin in the game and, and you know, relatively speaking, uh, uh, very little cash just because you're a financial vehicle with no business purpose. So I think it's a great way. Hey, you want to you wanna start a business? You want to see if, if it's worth working with someone? Hey, let's start a show. Let's just sort of put it there, see how it works. We'll have a touch point to, you know, discuss on and have conversations. And, you know, we have to speak at the very least once a quarter because we're, you know, f- filing our financials and, you know, there's continued disclosure and there's forms and there's all this. And you get to like really see what, what they're made of. And it's a great way. Like I, I've done shells with people and, and with the intent of doing a lot more business. And ultimately it's like, okay, like, Let's just do that shell. Let's go on, on our own paths. We just don't see the world the same way. And there's people that, you know, I started with a shell. Like, actually, my closest partner now, like, we started working on shells. And now we do most of our deals together because it was just such a pleasure to work with him. Like, we're both self-driven. Like, we're driven by the other person because we don't want to be sort of the slacker and the one that's getting freebies. So, you know, when I see him do something good, I need to do something better just to one-up him. And that just creates more value for everyone because we're highly aligned. And that sort of started by just, you know, getting involved in a shell. Did I make a lot of money in that first shell deal? I don't remember. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> matter. But that like unlocked a bunch more activities. So I'm much more relationship oriented. Like I don't think one single deal is going to make or break you. Yeah. Um, I think you need to build sort of your reputation and sort of show, you know, what your values are and what you do. And that's in itself is going to bring you way more business and way more opportunities. Yeah. And that usually takes a long time too, but you could also do it, you know, within, I think within a three-year window, you can kind of prove, prove that self out, which again, I, I talk to guys that are looking to take shells public all the time. And you usually want to have a shell that it's a clean shell, hundred K cash, at least to start that way you have some flexibility and you just go out and raise enough. Uh, so you don't over dilute the shareholders, but that's, that's so interesting. So, um, I want to kind of shift to the maybe the other sectors that you've that you've worked with. I mean, esports and e-commerce can kind of sort of be intertwined. I think cannabis and psychedelics are kind of mm-hmm. intertwined. What do you feel like right now? Let's give it like the next three years is a sector that is most investors might not be aware of it right now, but they should slowly start paying attention to it. I'm curious to know your thoughts and I'll share share my thoughts with you because this has been, I've been talking to so many companies about this and there's a lot of stuff happening. Sure. So, I mean, I think esports definitely has has room to run. You know, I think it's going to be the new sports. It's just so much easier to connect with someone, you know, with no geographic limits when you can connect on a video game. And I think that's going to be more commonly watched. And like, you know, I remember when I was, when I was growing up and I would play video games with my cousin and he would always play and I would be watching. And his mom would be like, let your cousin play. And I'm like, I don't want to. He's way better than me. Like, I, <laughs> I'd rather watch him play. And you know, now that's an actual trend where, you know, millions of people are watching Twitch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, still, I guess the, the boomer, the baby boomers don't understand how a kid is just going to watch, uh, uh, you know, esports. So I think that that's definitely a, a trend to watch. And if you just think on that, like the longevity of the players is so much so much longer than in regular sports where you know soccer player can have at most like call it 15 years or you know even tennis or football or basketball like it's very short 10 years in general here you can have a kid that can be a, a, a legend from 12 years old and he can still be you know decently good at 50 or 60 like it you know you still see pretty pretty good players there so i think that's a very interesting sector to focus on um i think the longevity sector something that is catching some 
uh, some interesting interesting heat behind it. Like you're seeing, you know, mainly multi-billionaires and and you know people with with very very high net worth sort of just looking to extend their life by any means possible. There's books on how to like biohack yourself, you know, with sort of sleep and and the right food and nutrients, and then you know the treatments or how to you know just extend your life. Like we've obviously seen you know a huge expansion in in you know your uh, the 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 years that people live uh but that could be extended a significant amount so there's a lot of research behind that um i think critical metals is, is has to be has to be watched i think that's definitely the future uh the the demand is going to soar um and and the the supply is limited so discoveries exploration is going to be is going to be a huge mega trend um and you know e-commerce as well you mentioned i think uh, less people are shopping the, the the traditional way, and it really breaks borders. Like here in Panama, you can get stuff from all over the world that you couldn't get here in a store. Like that's all what e-commerce facilitates, and I think that's just going to keep sort of expanding here and there. Um, that's sort of the the first ones that that come to mind. Um, I don't know if maybe you you say a few, and maybe I'll have well, some other ideas. Well, well, you, 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 it was one of them that we kind of talked about earlier. I mean, it's kind of like the the cousin or the sister i think it's more of a cousin to cannabis is psychedelics and the reason i bring that up is because there's been a lot of you know developments especially on health canada and then globally with psilocybin but there's also been like this new discovery of like ibogaine which i think 98 or 99 percent of the world doesn't even know what that is but i don't there- know what that is so there have been studies essentially where if you take ibogaine which is a very strong, you know, uh, factor that comes from like the mushroom. Again, I'm, don't quote me on like the actual mm. like medical terms, but what they've been able to do is in a controlled environment, you can actually cure someone's addiction of like crack cocaine oh, within yeah, a five, yeah, yeah, within yeah, a five the- hour period. So I, again, we're still early stages in this space. I think that's one sector that's going to do exceptionally well. But I don't think it's going to have, I don't think it's, it's psychedelics, but I don't think it's going to have the same sort of commoditized effect that cannabis had because cannabis to me reminded me sort of like cigarettes because of the packaging and the way it was like marketed. And then they said no more, especially in Canada, like (laughs) no marketing of brands. We want plain packaging. And I was like, Hey, you can't get creative, but with psychedelics, there's like, there's actual medical benefits behind this that are not getting talked about significantly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there are medical benefits to, to cannabis. They're Mm. sort of sectorized. It's, it's a bit blurred because of the recreational purposes. Yeah. Um, it's harder to sort of see psychedelics being recreational because they convey a more significant risk. And I would also say like the psychedelics term is very broad. Like you have things like ketamine that are, you know, dissociatives. Um, and then you have psilocybin, which is a bit more sort of an active trip and you have ibogaine, like you mentioned, which is like a 12 hour trip where someone has a horrible experience, goes back in time. Like people say they hate it. They like see, you know, their past and dead relatives. And it's like a really difficult experience. But after that and a proper integration process, there's about 80% uh, success rate on getting people off addictions from, like you said, heroin, crack cocaine, opioids, cigarettes, uh, uh, alcohol, like whatever heavy addiction there is that really helps both with the withdrawal symptoms as well as with the psychological component of of the addiction. So psychedelics are very broad. Um, I think there's a lot of uses with, you know, whether microdose or macrodoses or hero doses, there's a lot of ways to, to do it. And, you know, I, I think it's definitely here to stay. Like the, the, the science is real behind it. 
uh, it's just very tricky because it's not like a regular molecule that doesn't matter how you take it, where you take it, uh, you're going to have the same effect, whether it's like a, an Advil or a Tylenol, like you're going to get the same thing. Uh, whereas here, it's highly dependent on your set and setting. So if your mindset is not right or you're not yeah. in the right place with the right people, <laughs> you're going to have a bad trip and you don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah. So it's really important where like, you know, you do psilocybin in, in, in a plane, you're going to go crazy. Um, but if you do psilocybin in, in a field, you know, with good people and, you know, a nice sunset and just, you know, the right setting, obviously, with medical supervision and, and you know, the right uh, precautions, um, then that's going to be a radically different uh, experience. So I think that's what makes it very complex to sort of regulate. But, you know, the science is there. And because of the pandemic, we're literally going through a depression epidemic, mm -hmm. uh, an anxiety epidemic. There's so many people that that need help and, and that just really uncovered a lot. So, you know, I think it's a very interesting time where sort of supply is meeting demand and the science is there. So, you know, I think that that definitely will be here to stay in what form it will do so. Very hard to say, uh, but there's definitely merit to it and definitely uh, warrants more exploration and, and questioning. Yeah, I can confirm you don't want to be doing shrooms at a music festival. You're going to bad trip. So <laughs> sorry, mom, if you're listening. <laughs> but yeah, plus, like, it, plus it feeds into the longevity thesis. Like if you want lo general... longevity, longevity, Nick. Sorry, what did I say? Longevity. Longevity. He's on shrooms get... right now. Because, no, <laughs> you know, like, right, if... It, like I find people as they get older, more of them get like you have the you have the whole known thing of the midlife crisis people tend to go through, especially in men. Uh, and then you, when you retire and you have nothing to do, I feel like depression might weigh on you. So there's that kind of and with the aging population, I feel like this can play a role in kind of helping people get out of certain slumps or and it brings you right back to the moment rather than just be weighed down by the past or by the future or by anxiety and other stuff. It's like it just zones you in. And it just makes you kind of think about what's happening right now in front of you. Well, that's that's actually very, very relevant to what the science says in, in psychedelics, because essentially what you're trying to, to solve with psychedelics is deal with fixations. Uh, mm -hmm. So depression is a fixation to the past. Mm -hmm. uh, anxiety is a fixation to the future. Uh, um, addiction is a fixation from your past hit to your you know, future fix. Um, and essentially this allows you to have more flexibility in your brain and allow to reprogram it and sort of get away from sort of this behavior. So if you sort of analyze it from that angle, depression and anxiety are not that different than smoking cigarettes. Um, and they're all very sort of intertwined and interrelated. So, so it does make sense that they're treated. That's it's a pretty interesting set. It's worth mm -hmm. reading some of those papers. And uh, there's a great documentary on Netflix called How to Change Your Mind. Uh, mm -hmm. The book is pretty good as well. Uh, like the book is what got me into the sector, actually, because I think it really gives you a very unbiased way of sort of understanding the industry and seeing the opportunity. Uh, but it's always easier to watch a TV show. Uh. Well, look, I, I, I want us to, to obviously keep keep this conversation going. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening right now, and we're going to definitely have you back uh, over the next future here. But I'm curious to know with one last question, since we're, you know, we're running out of time here. Um, going forward right now, like if you had to talk to somebody who is maybe a little bit younger than all of us, but trying to get into the space, like what, what would be, what, what, what would your advice be to them? And just trying to get started in this whole, uh, capital markets ecosystem. Say like, look, be humble, be a good guy. It's hard to find good people. 
just try to help people and they're going to eventually reciprocate it. Like, you know, find someone that knows and try to be helpful. Try to find a way to add some value to what he's doing, shallow him for a bit. Um, and if you're a good guy, I think generally you'll you'll get some of that back. I think that's that's extremely important. I would say it's not the most complicated sort of sector, but it's hard to sort of break in. And it's a very small club, uh, generally speaking. You know, everyone sort of knows everyone. Like a lot of the players are, you know, one or two degrees of separation. So, you know, if you do bad things in your career, it's going to be very hard to flourish and to grow because that's always going to be hanging on on that person. So to me, that's really what's what's most important. I'm extremely values driven. Um, I think, you know, that's that's really at the core of everything. And you know, it's not only about making money. It's about making an impact, having a good time, like really enjoying what you do, like waking up every Monday and being like, yes, it's Monday. Like it's the start of the week. The markets are opening. Can't wait for 930. Uh, like that's an amazing feeling. And it's just like back to psychedelics, like brings you to like living in the now and enjoying every moment. So, you know, it's about enjoying the journey as well, not just about making money. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think like talk to people, network, uh, um, go to conferences and, uh, you know, people like helping people. If you give them a good reason to, and you're a good person and they're going to try to see you succeed and, and, you know, eventually it's up to you to reciprocate as well. I think that's important. Uh, that's so true. Just like be a good person. You know, there's too many. Uh, it's not that hard. It's really not that off. hard. Like, there's a difference between being nice and being a good person, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's very. They very kind different. of like they're very different, but they're intertwined. So, Matt, I totally agree with that. So, listen, um, Ray, very insightful conversation. Um, Nick, I think we have a shell guy now, so that's really good. Uh, adding and over deals, Rolodex. exactly. Over deals. But um, Ray, where where can the uh, listeners uh, find you here on, on social media and your website? Sure. So uh, my website is www.canaliscapital.com. I don't even know if you use the W's anymore, but uh, <laughs> canaliscapital.com, C-A-N-A-L-I-S, capital.com. Um, I'm most active on LinkedIn, sort of generally posting sort of press releases and news on my companies. Uh, Raymond D. Harari, uh, pretty active there. Send me a message, happy to engage. And then uh, WhatsApp is my most active business tool couldn't live without it so you know the second we connect on any on, on any uh, uh platform let's switch to whatsapp because that'll respond fairly quickly or deals <laughs> or deals <laughs> i love it ray thank you so much man um again excited for you and uh, i appreciate you sharing the wisdom with us here today and hopefully we'll see you in uh well we should, you should come to vancouver with us I'll try to. I'll try to. Sounds like a great opportunity. And yeah, it's great to meet you guys. Hope I can host you down in Panama as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, definitely open talking to, about it. It's cheaper than being yeah. down in Florida. <laughs> oh, for sure. And and you, if you, last time you were here was in 2010, you're, like, you're not going to recognize it. It's grown so I, much. I've been um, told. So uh, uh, definitely would host you here. Anything you need. It's, a, it's an awesome place. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and look forward to joining you in the future and we'll be in touch for sure. Yeah. Ray, we appreciate you, man. And, uh, Nick, I guess we'll see everybody next time on the new gen mindset podcast. Ciao guys.